Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to find diverse, talented candidates? Then we have something that can help our job board. Head on over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs to browse listings or to place your own. This week on the job board, NWEA is looking for an experienced design lead for school improvement services. This is a six-month contract to hire position, and it's open for remote candidates as well as those in Portland, Oregon. And MoneyThink is looking for a product designer in the San Francisco Bay Area. For just $99, you can post your job listing with us, and it will be on our job board for 30 days where we'll spread the word about your job to our diverse audience of listeners. We also offer annual job board subscriptions. Make sure to head over to revisionpath.com forward slash jobs for more info on these listings. Apply today and tell them you heard about the job through Revision Path. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Revision Path. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm your host, Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, I just want to give you one final reminder about our annual audience survey, which is closing on May 31st, which is today. If you're listening on May 31st, that's when this episode comes out. Anyway, if you haven't taken the survey yet, head over to revisionpath.com forward slash survey. One lucky respondent will win a $100 Amazon.com gift card. Now, someone has been spamming the survey. They're not going to win, obviously. Like, I can look and tell that it's all coming from, like, the same place with multiple malformed emails. Nice try. A real respondent is going to win the $100 Amazon.com gift card. But really, it's not about the gift card. It's about your feedback. You know, Revision Path has been around for eight years, 400 episodes. And it really, it's been the input of the audience that has helped us to get this far. So tell us what you want to see. Tell us who you want to see. Tell us who you want to hear from. All that sort of stuff so we can make Revision Path a much better show for you, the listener. Again, the survey ends May 31st. Today, if you're listening on May 31st, of course, we've been tweeting about the survey. We put it on Instagram. There's a link in the show notes. Again, revisionpath.com forward slash survey. Now we got that out the way, let's take some time and thank our accessibility sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. All right, now let's get to this week's interview. I'm talking with Sabrina Hall, Senior Product Design Manager at JustWorks and a design educator in New York City. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. Hi, I am Sabrina Hall. I'm a Senior Product Design Manager at JustWorks here in New York City. Nice. How has 2021 been for you so far? 
2021 has been a year of challenges and gratefulness. It's truly been a year with so many new opportunities, but also just one filled with collective and community grief and finding a balance between that and self-care for the past year. So it's been it's been complicated. Yeah. What lessons did you learn this past year? Like how would you say you've you've grown and improved over the last year or so? Yeah. Over the last year, a few of the lessons that have really stayed with me is community care and how it's so important during a time like this in the pandemic. Particularly, I was able to really actively advocate and be a part of mutual aid funds and understanding how to give directly to the community and support that. Some of the lessons for me were also identifying where I needed to set boundaries for my own self-care with the idea of, you know, putting my oxygen mask on first and being able to then care for others. Really continuing to be grateful for my space and for safety and for health and really seeing how the pandemic impacted so many marginalized communities and then also really just making space for deeper understanding and deeper compassion for folks' experiences as there's just been so much collective grief and so many folks that I know have really gone through a lot of loss in the past year. Yeah. It's so interesting how with this past year being as honestly as traumatic as it's been, how much of a rush there is now to almost forget the last year, not memorialize it or remember it in a in a way that sort of holds all the loss that we've held that we've experienced in a sacred place, but just to quote unquote get back to normal. Like, I'm not comfortable with how quickly the push is to make that happen without recognizing what we've been through. I really think the concept of getting back to normal is, for me, one that I don't identify with because normal was already in some ways quite challenging and possibly problematic with just some of the system, not possibly, but problematic with some of the systems we had in place already, particularly mm-hmm. around healthcare, particularly around flexibility for work and working remotely. I don't want to go back to a normal. I would like to look forward on creating new futures and new ideas of what a normal even means and whether that's more flexibility, whether that's continuing to think inclusively about how we work together and the experiences there. For myself, I was able to get together with folks who normally I might not have been able to because it was only in-person activities. I was able to grow a community in a way that I would not have been able to if we were in a normal time and would love to continue doing that work. And I think that while for some folks they may find comfort in normal, their normal really just doesn't acknowledge or make the space for addressing a lot of the issues of why we were in this space with our work schedules, with health. And I think going back to normal is, is not really the way I want to go. Yeah. 
normal, I think, as, as we've all seen and experienced through this time is highly subjective. Yes. Uh, one person's normal is, is another person's, I don't know, paradise in some ways, because mm-hmm. we've all had to deal with some level of, of, uh, of loss or just a, a curtailing of our regular activities through all of this. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, yes, exactly that. It's quite subjective and really understanding how do we just, yeah. How do we look to a new normal versus a past normal? Yeah. Now, one of the things you kind of talk about creating new futures, you kind of created your own new future. You started a, a new job during all of this. How has that been? It's been such an exciting time. I got a new job in the midst of the pandemic. So last year, I started in August. It was quite a different process, starting remotely, getting to know the team remotely as they're not a remote-based company, and understanding how do I set boundaries as well with working at home, how do I get comfortable and have a space where I can really be productive on a day-to-day basis, and then just building partnerships and relationships remotely, which takes a different type of effort versus running into someone in sort of the, in the kitchen or different communal workspaces where now it's like, okay, intentionally setting up that 20-minute Zoom call to introduce myself to folks. Yeah. It's interesting with the way companies are kind of still, I think, adjusting to it. You mentioned, like with uh, with JustWorks, it's sort of not being a remote first company. Is it changing now that I guess we're sort of starting to emerge from the pandemic, even in just a small way? Yes, there have been several changes. I would say that around the onboarding and hiring process, we come on as a cohort. So everyone starts on one day to really make it a streamlined process, thinking about how we share documentation and artifacts and really distributing that in a way that's easier and more accessible remotely. And then also going into the future, how can we be flexible? And I believe that Currently, they're looking at a way to keep partial work from home while still having folks back in the office as well. Well, that's nice. That's good to hear. What is a a typical day like for you? Yes, a typical day ranges throughout the week. My day on a Monday like today is really focused on kicking off our weekly sprints with various groups. So I focus on and and the design senior design manager for the benefits cluster, which is a large group that focuses on the benefits part of our product and then the growth pot as well. So my day begins with weeklies and kicking off with our sprints, meeting with my design team and having those one-on-ones to really identify the unblockers for the week and how to best set them up for success. Right now, we're in the middle of fiscal year and planning and attending that with some of my partners, product senior product managers, group product managers, working with engineering managers. So my day is a combination of relationship building, mostly meetings around our next product steps, and then also connecting with the design team through feedback workshops and with my fellow managers and our director as well, looking at our goals for the design team as well. Tell me a little bit more about your team. You mentioned designers. Do you have like other types of people that are working under you, like researchers or strategists or anything like that? 
Yeah, absolutely. Currently, we have a very a larger design team. I have three direct reports, one senior designer and two product designers. Currently, their skill sets are really expanding, and we focus on not only the user research which they lead, but also the visual de design and the UI work involved with that as well. So our designers are very closely working on research, also working on the user experience and partnering with engineers along the way too. What would you say is like the best part about what you do now? The best part about what I do now is partnering with the designers to continue unlocking and advocating for them to reach their highest potential. And that is so important because it's something that impacts everything, the business, the future of a product, their career growth, their ability to focus as designers. And it really is something that I enjoy and I learn so much from every week. I remember back when I was leading teams at this was at a, another place I used to work at. I mean, I just remember, first of all, there was always meetings. There were so many meetings, with, <laughs> whether there were one-on-ones or leadership meetings or this, that, and the other. And it never felt like I really got to work on stuff. It was more like I was working. I mean, I don't want to say stuff, but I wasn't working on the product. It felt like I was just more working with people. It was very much a people management kind of thing. Do you still sort of have the opportunity to work hands-on with the product in any way? Yeah, there are opportunities too. While I enjoy it, I definitely rely on on the experts of our product design team. <laughs> and I believe that the way I work with the product now just differs from the angle of the approach. So while I may not be necessarily working very closely on a user flow, I am thinking about it strategically and how best to set our product up for success, thinking of approaches to research, trying to identify interdepartment connections that we have, interdependencies. So it's definitely still working on the product, but yes, a little a little differently than before. I gotcha. You. So you're sort of making sure that the team is in the right place to kind of do the actual like hands-on work on the product, but you're shepherding the team. You're like you said, removing barriers and making sure that they can do the best work that they can do without any sort of obstructions or interruptions. Yes. Nice. Gotcha. Now, before this, you were an art director at Scholastic. How is this role at JustWorks different from that one? So my role at Scholastic was quite similar. And at Scholastic, the structure of, Titles was very different there as a company that was focused in the print space and then expanded to digital. So there were many overlapping parts, whether it was managing our team, focusing on the lead of a product, really doing a lot more hands-on work. So that was definitely one of the big differences with regards to day-to-day -day being in the design process. And some of the other differences have been really getting more time and space to be focused on the strategy while not having to also do the IC work. But so much of it was also really focused on what are the two sides of an experience. So at Scholastic, it was really thinking about the students using the product and the teachers using the product while the school is making the purchase of the product. And similar to some of the work I do now, we think about the admins who are working with JustWorks and the employees who use the product as well. 
Now, just to kind of switch gears here a little bit, I saw when I was looking at your website, you mentioned that you were born and raised in New York City. Yes. Tell me about kind of your early intros to design. Yeah, absolutely. I So I was born and raised in the Bronx. My intro to design started in high school. I went to the Bronx High School of Science. I really enjoyed writing. Like I was convinced I was going to go to Fordham and study journalism. That was my first, like one of the first things I wanted to focus on. But I loved art. I've always loved art. Probably just, yeah, as far as I can remember, when I was applying to go to junior high school, I went to Eastside Middle School. I had to take off my shoe and draw it as part of the entry for that school. So I've always (laughs) loved art. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, this is going to get me in. And it was such a good experience. Then at Bronx Science, I recall enrolling in AP art. And the teacher at the time, Miss Ash, I remember enjoying it so much. I was doing collage work and I was just enjoying every part of AP art. And she was like, you know, this is something you can do as a career. And I was like, what do you mean? I, I don't understand this at all. And at the time, I remember also loving things like Write On, Word Up magazine. And like that was the space that I was just really in. And she was like, all these magazines that you enjoy, there's a graphic designer doing this. And it is something that you can have a career from. I was completely shook. I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) How do I do this? And that shifted everything. I made portfolios. I gathered work. I was really fortunate to have parents who supported me at the time. They were not aware of graphic design as a career. And regardless, they were like, okay, if you believe you can do this, we're supporting you. And applied to several schools and ended up going to the School of Visual Arts in New York. That's interesting that it's magazines that were kind of an entry point. That was like that for me as well. Like I grew up in the deep South and mm-hmm. like getting Vibe magazine and yes. YSB, I'm dating myself now, but YSB <laughs> and Emerge and like seeing all of this and, and one, these positive representations of blackness, but then two, to know that there were black people behind it that were, you know, designing it was really something that kind of brought me more into the space. Although it was much later, I don't want to say much later in my career, but certainly it, it wasn't something I went to school for. Now you did go to school for design. You went to SVA. What was your time like there? My time there was an overall positive experience. I was exposed to just so many different things in the art industry, understanding the challenges within being in that space, understanding being one of few in that space. But I I learned so much. I graduated with a bachelor's in fine arts with a focus in graphic design and really understood that this was something that I enjoyed doing and could really thrive at and would be able to, you know, at the time really was thinking about how I can put my own mark on design and and using it. So that was one of the biggest learning experiences from it. Now SVA of course is a, I mean, it's a well-known school. We've had several SVA alum here on the show. If you could sort of just, I don't know, give an endorsement for the school in a way, like in what ways did SVA sort of really prepare you for a career as a designer? I would say that SVA prepared me for some of the challenges in design around it being a very homogenous industry. Mm -hmm. 
but also realistically, it exposed me in the same hand to folks in the industry who had certain networks, were able to really identify what the industry is looking for and really empowered me to begin like you know just the beginning stages of understanding how I could use this as a career like I think even throughout the process it was very clear that this was something that I could do as a job which was really important to me with with then graduating from any college now at first uh, your design career dealt with a lot of print work Mm -hmm. when did you sort of make this transition more into digital design Yeah, I joke sometimes, possibly aging myself here, that I feel like I'm one of the last folks who graduated with a print portfolio that sort of like (laughs) flew in the wind, one of these larger pieces. What I found for myself as I started to enter the industry was I loved editorial, gravitated towards that space, was doing a lot of print work and branding and corporate, but found that things were changing and things were changing rapidly. So From being in a print space, I've always been someone who loves learning and I'm excited by change. And I realized, okay, print is changing, particularly within the editorial space. Things started moving towards e-publications and understanding how to design for that. And I think at the time, InDesign had an add-on, I don't know what it's called now, that was made specifically for ePub. And I went in and tried to learn that as much as I could and experimented there. From there, I then also started to teach myself to code because I felt like so much was moving in that direction with regards to creating blog. And so there was a specific time where like everything was about blogs and wanting to understand that and engage in that space. And I would say that probably came maybe around 2010 was when that shift started to happen. So I had always begun to like dabble in that space, but then really focused in earnest when I was at the end parts of focusing on editorial and then moving into digital spaces. So I started building websites in WordPress, started doing my own little front end work here and there, and then really learning to expand upon that and moving into a focused lens with with product design. Now, with all of this sort of change in focus, I'm trying to remember, like, I know back then on the web, certainly there was this big shift from more almost print-based design. I guess that's the sort of the best way I can put it. Because we were designing with tables, and then there was the shift from mm-hmm. tables to CSS, and then even with CSS, there were shifts into preprocessors and to Flexbox and all that stuff that sort of came later on. And it felt like that change really shifted a lot more people into design. I just remember how hard it was to design around tables <laughs> back in the day. And largely it was just based off of print. I mean, even some of the the terms that we use for some of the tags are from print terms like break lines and anchors and things like that. So it's really interesting how those those shifts sort of precipitate kind of changes in the industry. Now, in you know, sort of in this time, like right around then, you also started your own design studio kind of alongside your full-time work. What inspired you to, to sort of branch out in that way? Yes, I was in a space where I really wanted to continue learning and do a wider breadth of work. I felt like 
while I was focused on editorial, I really wanted to try new things. And I started moonlighting with a few folks after hours and on the weekends working on projects from like, okay, I'll build out your WordPress site with the full branding to logo design to you're setting up an app. How can I just help you with the first stage of low fidelity? And what I found during that time was that slowly it went from my, you know, my own moonlighting schedule to then word of mouth that I then realized like I could do this full time. And it was quite a process. I learned so much in making and working for myself with regards to everything from taxes, hiring folk, partnering, distributing work, and then really understanding how to pitch the work that I do, the Mm -hmm. value of what I could bring to individuals and companies and understanding that I was really enjoying the process of solving a business problem together with a small business or one person who was like, I'm starting, you know, my own website for a book I'm coming out with. How can you help? And that was what really drew me to to doing that for so long. I love how with studios, you really get to have that flexibility, not just on like who you may decide to take on, but also just the kind of work that you do and even the level of specificity that you want to take on, you know, with the project. It's it's funny that you call it moonlighting. I haven't heard someone say that in so long. (laughs) But I, I get what you mean, just in terms of like doing stuff. Like now what side project is the new moonlighting, I guess? I think uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but yeah. like I, I but I get what you mean. The you're kind of like working on us on other stuff during off hours that you're you know, probably should be relaxing or whatever. But it's such a good way when you have your studio to do that, because you can really dabble in different things and you can decide sort of the direction you want to go into. You can really be a specialist at stuff if you want mm-hmm. to as opposed to maybe being more of a generalist with things. Studio stuff is great, but yeah, the the part about getting really the the nuts and bolts stuff down with like taxes and accounting and all of that. I tell entrepreneurs all the time or designers that want to be entrepreneurs, like get an accountant. Like that's the first thing you should do is try to get somebody that's <laughs> going to handle the money so you can focus more on the creative stuff because that other stuff just bogs you down, you know? Yes. And I did not get an accountant for quite a long time. <laughs> So it was definitely lessons learned there and so many other things, even with regards to setting up proposals, understanding how to reply to RFPs, the competition Mm -hmm. in the market, and then just also understanding the industry where there were years that while I was working on various projects that I made significant gains and significant losses as well and just really understanding that holistically for running a business and what it meant for my own work-life balance as well. Yeah. And now, like a few other people that we've had here on the show before, you're also a teacher at City Tech. You're an adjunct professor there. What made you decide to start teaching? Yes. So I'm going to give a very explicit shout out to Douglas. (laughs) I, I had always had an interest in teaching. It is connected for me through, for several years, I was a mentor in the AIGA mentoring program. And for several years after that, co-chaired it with one of my closest friends, Anjali Menon. And throughout that time, I had always enjoyed partnering with folks who were interested in design, community, equity, and really enjoyed that space. I had been invited by Douglas to join for a panel event 
And in having those conversations, he was like, there's an opportunity here at City Tech. I really think this would be something that would be fantastic. And I was like, well, I don't know. I had only done a couple of lectures at that point in time and hadn't been fully situated. I was very nervous. How can I teach in reflecting and saying on this now? I know that it was possibly ingrained because my mom's a teacher. My husband's a teacher. So I'm surrounded by teachers. <laughs> and in true to form, I was like, okay, sink or swim. This is the opportunity. So Douglas had mentioned it. Then a few months later, he was like, here's the role. And I was like, well, Douglas, I don't know about the hours. Here's the perfect hours. I don't know about the day. Here's the perfect day. Everything <laughs> lined up. And I was like, all right, let's do it. And it has been such a humbling experience, a wonderful experience, and an opportunity to really, I think, disrupt the design industry from a perspective I hadn't always considered. Hmm. What do your students teach you? Mm. My students teach me how compassion is important. My students remind me that kindness is important and that you can learn with this as a structure. My students teach me that the industry is very subjective in so many ways and very challenging and continues to be challenging for folks to enter into. And my students teach me that sometimes and many times I don't know the answer and my role is to help them figure it out and for myself to learn alongside with them. Yeah. Do you find that with, I guess, you know, the pandemic and how that may have distanced you from it? Has that changed the way that you teach? The pandemic really impacted the way I taught, I believe, for the better. One of the things that I felt very strongly about in supporting my students throughout the pandemic is removing the requirement for cameras. City Tech has always been really great about that, but in various educational circles, I, you know, I've been reading and seeing how like some professors are making it mandatory and really just understanding what true engagement means and that it doesn't mean someone having a camera on in Zoom. Mm -hmm. Another thing it has really identified is clarity around teaching, specifically with increased documentation, increased expectations, and then also identifying the boundaries of that as well, particularly with being home and understanding, you know, do I need to be engaged on this email right now after having taught for three hours or can it wait till tomorrow and like resetting the time I need to reset as well. What would you say that you're obsessed with lately? Oh, this is such a delightful question. Okay, I'm currently obsessed with the natural sciences. I have been in this really particular space I had just finished rereading Emergent Strategy and just am so intrigued by how the natural sciences and like plants and birds and like the biomimicry of things and how we can learn from that. I particularly am really into how like certain trees grow together and support one another and how that could be paralleled into team structures. And hmm. I'm also really into birds right now. I'm like just enjoying 
seeing documentaries about birds and how they build things and just again learning from the natural sciences is my like headspace currently we had a designer oh god when was he on the show we had a designer on the show last year i think it was right around april or may or so but it's episode 340 with billy allman billy is a he calls himself a biology inspired storyteller and designer I mean, a lot of the work that he does is around the natural sciences, like a lot of his design work and such. I first met Billy at Harvard. This was at the Black and Design Conference Mm -hmm. in 2019. He was on one of the panels there, and he was really talking about how, like you mentioned, biomimicry, and that's what sort of stuck out to me is that he really sort of does a lot of kind of what you're talking about. He looks at how the natural sciences work in other ways and other applications. And he gave this really great example about ants and like how the way that ants build their like ant hills and stuff, how that social structure can go forth in societies. It was, it was super fascinating episode 340. If anyone's listening and want to check it out with Billy Allman, but it was a really, really great, great interview. And it just sort of got me to thinking about that when you said natural sciences and biomimicry. I just made a note of it, and I, too, will be listening to episode 340, so <laughs> I up, and anyone else who cares to listen, happy to have that, you know, t- Twitter conversation in regards. Yeah, because the, the theme, so to go back to, I guess, the, the that conference, the whole theme was around creating more equitable futures, and now that I think about it, it's the last conference I went to in person, you know, prior to the, the whole pandemic, but the conversations there were around how can designers use all sorts of things to create more equitable futures. And with Billy, it was about like using nature for design and for technology to make equitable futures, like looking at nature and seeing how nature heals and fixes itself and structures itself and think, how can we take that and just apply it to design or apply it to tech or apply it to social issues or things of that nature? It's really Really interesting stuff. I am so intrigued. This sounds like really in alignment with what I'm interested in right now. And I I definitely cannot wait to check this out. (laughs) Now, I love that you have in your bio that you are a writer. What does writing do for you as a designer? Like, what does that sort of tap into? Yes. Writing for me as a designer taps into so many different things. For me, it's accountability in a way that I hadn't expected where I find I'm able to share information and hold myself accountable for some of the processes that I'm thinking through for documenting and finding ways to explain myself and continue to practice that as a skill set. Overall, also, writing has been really helpful for me with regards to understanding how to build connections and relationships. And what I mean by that is something like introducing yourself to a client, writing a proposal, understanding the perspectives to take there. Additionally, writing has been a space also where I've learned so much about my own process with regards to how I write out the stories for my portfolio to reflecting on growing as a designer who 
as introverted and what that meant for social media and understanding that I can write these things down, look at them, reflect, learn from them. And sometimes I almost think of writing as just another version of design in terms of like getting all of the information put into a space that I can then use for reference or share or just document for my own journey. Writing as another version of design. I like that. I like that. I was explaining to someone recently about, they had asked me when was the last time that I had designed something because I mean, people know that I do this show and then like for my actual day job, I also kind of do some work dabbling in audio, even though I'm a creative strategist and they just sort of asked me, when's the last time you designed something? And I got what they meant. They meant when was the last time you sort of, I guess, sat down in Illustrator or Photoshop and visually designed something. But I told them that like a lot of what I do now these days is more along sort of designing processes and designing systems. And I do a fair amount of writing as well. And I don't know how many designers would consider writing as an element of design, but it totally is. It it absolutely is. Yeah. And even now this show is designed the organization of how this is put together, the outcome, the way that work has been set up in terms of the research that's done. And I think of, you know, design is now moving out of a space of just like being just that artifact of, you know, a product or something in Photoshop or Figma, but more how we can also just apply it to various things with regards to that problem solving lens and, and experimenting lens as well. How do you think we can encourage more designers, specifically more black designers or designers of color? How can we encourage them to write more? What I have found that encourages me to write as a black designer is the importance and impact of my voice to everything else that is also out there. And what I mean by that is as an industry, there are always articles that tend to be very popular and are written from specifically, which tends to be the case, the majority, a cis white hetero male perspective Mm -hmm. and that is one perspective and I have found that in many situations I'm unable to find that material fully helpful because of the inability to just relate by adding my own voice it really gives a different perspective I hold myself accountable to that perspective to say, here is my approach to it and here are the things that I would consider. And I encourage other folk to share their voice in a way that they feel best identified with their goals and the outcomes that they are are looking towards and really just saying design has many folks and many perspectives in many faces. I usually also try to, I mean, when I'm talking to designers and trying to impart the importance of writing, I try to to show it to them in a historical sense. Like say you go into a bookstore, like a Barnes and Noble or something, and you go to the 
design section. I guess there's, I haven't been in a bar. I haven't been in a bookstore in like a year or so because of the pandemic. So I don't <laughs> really remember, but I'm sure there is like a arts and design section. I sound like an old person, but I'm sure that section exists and you go there and you're looking for books and you'll probably notice that most of the books there are not by or from people of color. Like the, the importance I see to writing is to put your own words out there to be a part of the historical design corpus. And that may not necessarily be a book. It could be mm-hmm. an article, a series of articles. It could be, and even, uh, you know, I'm saying writing, you know, in terms of the physical act, but like it could be a podcast. It could be videos. It could be Instagram live videos, whatever, but finding another outlet to sort of transmute your thoughts from your head into a, a medium that other people can enjoy. And I think writing certainly is one way to do that. And a, I think a big way to really spread your words out there more so people can know what it is that you think and what you feel and like the thoughts behind the work that you do, or even just the thoughts about this industry. I see so many people writing up a storm about stuff on Twitter. I am a very sporadic Twitter user. I really kind of only use it as a highlight reel. And I try to save all the stuff that I really want to sort of get out there. Either I make it into a presentation, I'll talk about it in the show, or I'll write about it. And I feel like that way my words can sort of live longer because tweets are such an ephemeral thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And, you know, no matter how many prolific tweet threads you might have, is that really going to like be around in a week or a month or a year or five years, you know? So thinking about it in the historical sense of that, your words carry weight. Your words are your thoughts, you know, in this other form. And it's a way that it can sort of live on past whatever experiences you might have or or anything of that nature. And it can be just sort of a historical reference in many ways. Yeah, absolutely. And I even found that I forgot probably a few years ago, I was just looking to write about black designers and found such limited material on Mm -hmm. the surface level and there was definitely material but on the surface level of like a half hour google search there was not much and what the impact of that was was like okay so this is not something that is easily accessible how can it become more accessible and part of the entire canon or you know design history as well so i absolutely hear you yeah Who are some of the, like, design mentors or anyone that have really helped you out along your way? I have been really fortunate to have some great folks along the way. When I was doing a lot of consultancy work, there was a creative director named John Herr, who really at the time continued to create space for me to just grow and advocated for me to lead on different projects. When I was much younger and working in an agency space, there was a professor of mine who was then also our creative director, Terry Coppell, who influenced and impacted my career trajectory. And then a lot of the non-design folk and what I mean by that are community members with regards to folks who work within the community of design and that can be folks in research folks really in creating community spaces and then a lot of my peers I would say have been 
mentors, probably not actively, and I don't know if they would give themselves the, those titles, but a lot of my peers have pushed the way I've thought, have provided so much advice, insights, clarity, and just space for me to to ask questions as well. Going back to the writing again, if you had to write a book, what would you write about? I have been thinking about writing a book and maybe piecing together the concept of writing a book. A couple of topics that come to mind are that connection between the natural sciences and design organizations. I'm also very interested in sharing about the experiences, my own experiences within the design industry when there is, I feel the the time and space to put that together. And I'm also really interested in writing about design education as well and the, the design of that industry in terms of the funnel of that and how we think about entry points of design and think about design education overall. Hmm. Can you, I don't know, dive into that a little more about design education? Because you are a design educator yourself. Like, what would you want to sort of explore there? Yeah, I believe that a lot of our design education in New York, in my own experience that I've had, I can't speak to other experiences, but to my own experience has been very Eurocentric. Mm. And there has been so much erasure of the work of other folks who are not Eurocentric, without the Eurocentric lens. And what that means is that a lot of work and a lot of the things that I experienced coming into the industry was, I used to really be someone who focused on Swiss design, and that was the aesthetic I went towards. And learning later on that was that really nature or nurture from the perspective of like, that was all I was told Yet when I brought about a different design style that was much more colorful and focused on patterns, it was like that that wasn't graphic design at the time. That wasn't qualified by my teachers in some cases as being like a strong enough graphic design. And I realized part of that education is because it's so limited with regards to only learning about certain certain names and only learning about certain folks as like the most important folks within the design. And that just continues to perpetuate those norms into the industry, into how we consider what quote unquote good versus bad work is. And I put those in quotes because that like, it's just a simple binary of good versus bad, but it's not, that's the, you know, the the nuances in the gray area. And then also really understanding how that impacts all the way up to who gets hired, who gets access to design education. Why is it that design school is so expensive and that the cost for entry is so high. What happens to folks who don't have the access but have every interest and skill set? And just, yeah, wanting to, to dig into that a little deeper. I mean, that sounds fascinating. I would love to read a book about that. And, and certainly, you know, it's an interesting reflection on sort of where we're seeing, at least from what I'm seeing from Black design educators, how now they're really starting to bring in other sources to, I want to use the word decolonize only because that's the word that sort of has been attached to these conversations, but Mm -hmm. they're really, I think, diversifying their sources of just like where other students can learn about design. And it's not just from like, you know, like you said, the Bauhaus or Swiss style or German Mm -hmm. style. And, And a lot of these are like 
events, there are conferences, there's so much stuff now. I mean, honestly, even from before when I started this podcast, there's so many more events and opportunities and ways to learn about the history of black people in design now than there were 10 years ago. It's amazing. Mm -hmm. And I I really want to see where it goes from here. Yeah, I think it's an exciting time. I believe that it's really beginning to open up just so many different perspectives with regards to also who teaches design, also to your point, how we learn about design. So from your podcast to events like where all the black designers to various slack groups that have come up to just how there are these micro communities even through social media as well where folks are asking one another questions having conversations about the industry and their employer and really i believe also there is the business side of it, we're hand in hand with all of the civic unrest and the specificity of the murder of George Floyd, mm-hmm. how that, how all of a sudden everyone's like, oh, we're being held accountable as companies. Yeah. And everyone's looking at your board of directors and looking at your staff. At least I am. I can't speak for everyone, but you know, <laughs> starting to look at that even closer than I was previously and understanding and seeing, okay, how are these companies defining for it or, you know, working around it? Because it's it's also aligning with what a lot of folks are asking for, too, for themselves in the industry, I think. Yeah, I know when that, you know, unfortunately, when his murder occurred last year and how that one really drove people out into the streets to protest. But it was amazing how so many people were calling on companies because companies were doing this thing where mm-hmm. they're like posting the black squares and saying they stand for racial justice and everyone else is like ah, ah, ah. but what about in your industry or like mm-hmm. what about in this industry so you had so many people that were starting to sort of turn it around and say well if you're really committed then why does the industry look like this why does the industry function in this way like what are the real steps that you're taking besides just posting a black square you know mm-hmm. um and i have been telling folks this year i was like juneteenth is going to be crazy this year which is on a saturday I know last year there were a lot of companies that were saying, yes, we're going to make this a day off and, and, you know, we're going to start to observe it. I guess maybe they'll observe it on Friday now. So three day weekend in June, I guess. I don't (laughs) I'm assuming that's going to be coming up. I I guess we'll see. And I think that for myself, these are some questions I had been asking before, but probably just more so in private. And I think that with these conversations happening, there's much more room for these conversations publicly, not always, but just a little bit more and really understanding and also learning what's best for folks. Are there, there's pros and cons for, for so many aspects to it, but what are the ways in which it can help folks? Yeah. When you look at where you're at now, is this how you imagined yourself when you were a kid? Oh, no, I don't think so. I feel like I would not have imagined this per se. Likely, I I thought of myself in some way of doing something creative, but I would not have imagined the ability to, or just the immediate yeah, the immediate ability to lead a team, to work through teams, to run my own business. I don't think I would have 
necessarily imagine this, but probably felt like I could try different things. Like, I think I've always just had that curiosity, but yeah, I don't think I would have imagined this to this and I wouldn't, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't change it anyway. At this point, like where you're at in your career with teaching, with what you're doing at Just Works, with your writing and everything, how do you now define success? I would define success as a few things. The ability to make decisions that I feel much more confident about. I would define success as the impact of continuing to advocate for others and continue to make space for community work. I would define success as the recognition and understanding of my time and value and not settling as well. And I define success as being able to set boundaries and be able to say no to things as well. Nice. It's a very layered definition of success. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where do you see yourself in five years? Like it's 2026. Mm -hmm. What kind of work do you want to be doing? Ooh, I would like to be working on projects that care, just continues to care about people in the future, whether that's through AR, VR, sound design and interactions there. I think in five years, the mediums and tools that we use will continue to change and being able to be a strategic partner for those things. I, I could see myself going back to running my own business as it's something that I do enjoy and or continue to just partnering in the education space as well and always being able to, to make a bridge to continue to increase access. Well, just to wrap things up here, where can our audience find out more about you and about your work and everything online? Yeah, absolutely. You can find me at sabrinahalldesigns.com or on Twitter at sabrinahallnyc. All right. Sounds good. Well, Sabrina Hall, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. One, for just sharing your story and, and talking about the work that you're doing, but also, you know, really impressing upon, you know, I think not just me, but also to the audience, like the importance of writing, the importance of really also just like checking in with yourself, you know, like you said, being able to set those boundaries and using that work to, of course, make yourself better and to make, you know, your community better. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you, Maurice. Thank you for having me. Big, big thanks to Sabrina Hall. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Sabrina and her work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our wonderful sponsor for this episode, Brevity and Wit. Brevity and Wit is a strategy and design firm committed to designing a more inclusive and equitable world. They accomplish this through graphic design, presentations, and workshops around IDEA, inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility. If you're curious to learn how to combine a passion for IDEA with design, check them out at brevityandwit.com. Brevity and Wit, creative excellence without the grind. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. 
This podcast is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by Yellow Speaker. So what did you think of the interview? What do you think about the podcast overall? Don't be a stranger. Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Just search for Revision Path or leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Let the world know how you feel about the show because it really helps us grow and reach more people all over the world. As always, thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.